Alex, are there roots in your climbing career where you had a, a major breakthrough, like maybe a jump to grade or sort of saw a new possibility? Something that really stood out to you along your journey? Well, actually, I mean, climbing the nose in a day for the first time, it's like a little cliche, but my first time climbing all cap felt like a big breakthrough. I mean, the goal was to climb the nose in a day. And then when we topped out, we thought it was the middle of the night and then the sun rose right after we topped out. We were like, oh my God, the whole night went by. Basically, we, we finished in 22 hours or something. It was like the whole day. And we were just so worked. And it just felt like a big step forward in terms of what was possible on big walls or in Yosemite. It, I still think it's the most tired I've ever been. My climbing journal, I can, I you know, I've looked at it since then. And in like the five days after we climbed the nose, I tried to climb each day, but I basically would go out and climb like two V zeros and then rest the rest of the day. I'd go out and solo <laughs> one pitch of five six and then rest. I was like completely shattered for a week. <laughs> How about soloing? Do you remember the first route you soloed? Uh, yeah, I remember the first. I remember the first meaningful routes that I soloed. There were uh, two multi pitches at Lover's Leap in in the Sierra. Oh, was it like Bears, the line and uh, Bears Reach? No, no. Those you've heard of because they're classic and kind of rad. The ones <laughs> I did were not rad and, and less classic. I did this thing called Knapsack Crack, which is like a two-pitch 5-3 uh, that goes up and over this little hump in front of Lover's Leap. That oh, was yeah, like perfect yeah. little warm-up. <laughs> totally. And I've done that more recently as an adult and it's the kind of thing that, that nowadays it feels like I'm doing the approach to some actual climb <laughs> you know I'm in my tennis shoes and I'm just walking like, up the whole thing and I'm where's like, the rest of the route yeah, yeah exactly I'm like where's the, where's the climb does it start somewhere up there but and then uh, after that I did a route called corrugation corner which is a pretty classic 5-7 but those had more to do with the fact that I had climbed them with a partner uh, recently before with gear just as like learning how to track climb and so I knew I could do them I knew that that you know like I knew where the roots went. I mean, at that point, I didn't even really know how to read topos that well or anything. So, so just knowing where the route went up the wall was an important, important aspect of it for me. Do you think climbing can change a life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives you something to work for your entire life, to work toward, to work on, you know, so, something to invest your effort into. Mm -hmm. So if climbing can change life, are there roots that can change life as well, right? I'd say to listeners out there too, think about it. Is there a route that changed your life? Drop us a line or leave us a comment on Instagram. Um, Alex, who is joining the team today for our next round table? Today we're talking to Karima Batts. Karima is a climber, stage four cancer survivor, an amputee, and the founder of the Adaptive Climbing Group. So for the last decade, she's been at the center of a push for broadening the sport's reach, because of climbing's impact on her own life. The AAC recently awarded Karima and the Adaptive Climbing Group their first Changemaker Award. Our executive producer, Lisey Hendricks, and producer, Lauren Delaney-Miller, join us as well. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. So Karima, can you just kick it off by uh, introducing yourself and, and telling us what you do? Uh, my name is Karima Batts, born, raised, and still kicking it off here in Brooklyn, New York. I guess I work in the climbing industry for free and not for free. Um, primarily known for paraclimbing, professional seat filler in the outdoor industry. That's what I would put on my business card. So... What does that mean? Uh, professional seat filler. Um, I have a really big ass and I use it. I sit on DEI committees, accessibility committees. I 
you know, you name it, I'm I'm there. I'm in there for community change. I'm most known for paraclimbing. I'm the founder of Adaptive Climbing Group, which is the largest paraclimbing program in the U.S. and actually the first of its kind. Why it's why there are so many adaptive climbing groups. Period. Called adaptive climbing groups. Um, I'm the first female paraclimber to ever compete in a, a USA climbing sanctioned competition, as well as serving as its team official over the years, commentated nationals, commentated World Cups. Uh, I'm I'm there. I'm there to sit in the seats. So, yeah, that's what I do. We were talking on our team call, Karima, a few weeks ago. I asked Lisi, oh, how was your weekend? What'd you do? And Lisi basically was like, yeah, I, I sent this route. And I think you said something along the lines of Lisi, like, it changed my life. You know, or like, or the whole process was like one of the defining moments of your life. And you're like, whoa, I don't think that happens if you play golf. Maybe it does. Maybe you hit like a hole in one or something like that. But it's just... It's like such a different sport in that way. And so we were hoping to talk to today about um, basically routes that either changed our perspectives on ourselves or showed us something that we didn't know or a route that just absolutely just changed our life because of who it introduced us to or what it brought us into. I don't know if, Lisi, if you want to take it away and just tell us a little bit about Fall of Man. Yeah, so I started trying this route called Fall of Man, which is considered, I think, one of the best routes in the world. It's at the Virgin River Gorge and started trying it in 2020. And at the time, I was climbing a lot. I was climbing like four or five days a week. I was climbing really well. I was climbing that grade in a few goes. And I had done another classic route there in a few tries called Joe Six Pack. And so I was kind of like my ego was a little inflated, I got to (laughs) say. And I thought that I was just going to like do this route really quickly and that that was going to prove that I was a really good climber for some reason. So I started trying it and I couldn't even do some of the moves on it until I had tried it 20 or more times. And I was starting to feel pretty deflated by it. And eventually I started one hanging it. Then my husband and I got COVID and we ended up having to stop climbing for a month. And so I walked away from the route and it was really emotional for me because I felt like it meant all sorts of things about me as a climber. I felt like it meant that I wasn't good enough and I was embarrassed. I was, there was all sorts of emotions um, that kind of came along with it. And after that happened, it took me a honestly, a long time to recover. I would spend, and this sounds ridiculous, but I would spend like hours crying just about how like ashamed I felt about walking away from that route and um, what that meant. And people would ask me like, oh, did you send? And it would just break my heart into a million pieces. And so I started examining like, why do I feel this way about a climbing route? Like, how is my ego and myself so closely tied to something that really doesn't matter at all in terms of like who I am as a person? And it took me on this crazy journey where I <laughs> got <a> therapist. <laughs> I started working on like healing my relationships with some of my family members on healing my relationship with myself. And, um, it really truly like made me examine who I was as a person and made me think a lot about 
how I wanted to change my relationship, not just with the sport that I love, but with myself. And so, yeah, so a few years go by (laughs) and, uh, this past season I was, I felt emotionally ready and prepared to, to tackle that route again. Um, so I went out there and I decided that this time around, I was just going to, uh, if I wasn't having fun on the route, I was not going to try it anymore. If I felt like my uh, self-esteem was getting way too wrapped up in climbing, I was going to back away and I wasn't going to put any emphasis or pressure on actually sending the route. And that I was just going to think about all of the things that I loved about climbing on this route, why climbing was so meaningful to me and why this was like such an important experience for me. And I also felt like it would be a really good challenge to myself to be able to be like, okay, I'm going to apply all these things that I just spent the last like three years working on and learning. And I ended up doing it in only a handful of tries this season. And it was a really, really special moment for me um, because even when I was making my way through the slab at the top, I was just in such disbelief that I was sending the route (laughs) that I just kept trying to tell myself like, (laughs) you know, you're one hanging, it's fine. Don't, cause I was so stressed that I was gonna botch it at the top. Um, And when I finally got to the top, I clipped both anchors and just immediately started crying. And my, one of my best friends was belaying me and she lowered me to the ground. And it just felt like this moment of like overcoming all of these things that were unhealthy in my relationship with myself and climbing and being able to kind of like face those fears that I had and yeah, become a better person because of it. And so it was, it was just a really, really special thing to me. And at the same time, and I told Fitz this, it almost, it doesn't really mean anything because it's just a route. And so, you know, like the accomplishment in and of itself meant nothing. It was more about the journey that I took along the way and the process of it all. It's a good thing you didn't send it the first season. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Who would I be? (laughs) I know. I was like, what a journey. I had no idea that you went on such a journey with that route. It's not even... I almost cut in at the beginning when you're like, it's one of the best routes in the world. And I'm like, what? It's like some <laughs> random, like terrible. It's the kind what of route you, you wouldn't about? even. It was the journey of the route. It's not even. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the journey that matters. Yeah. yeah. But the route is terrible. <laughs> what are you talking about? Fallen Man is an amazing route. Are you crazy? I mean, it, it's good, but w- would you ever climb it again for fun? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you're calling something one of the best routes in the world, then it should be something that you would repeat for pleasure at least from time to time or like every season well, or two, you'd be I like, mean, I should okay. do that again. I would repeat yeah. the route if it wasn't such an endeavor. Um, well, I asked it because it is quite uh, the endeavor. Yeah, I don't know. Even I mean, for me, that route is less of an endeavor, but I still would not repeat it because I'm just like, ah, you know, it's kind of heinous. It's like it's not really pleasant. <laughs> Whereas a lot of the other routes on the wall, you repeat every season because you're like, that's a great route. It's so fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I would repeat much at the VRG <laughs> except for the warm-ups. Yeah, 
Yeah. I don't know. I'm afraid we're all going to tell Alex what our favorite roots are, and he's going to be like, well, yeah. it's not really that good. Not that fantastic. <laughs> I have high standards. I, well, I think most people disagree with you, Alex, so I'm just going to put the, that and the, the point of a roundtable is, you know, the, the point is that it's about the, the process, you know, it's like what you got yeah. from the root. <laughs> I was more attached to the fact that she said that she had to like reevaluate her personal relationships that a climbing route did that to her. You know what I mean? Actually, I, I would definitely revisit mine. I feel like I'm a different person now. We'll be back with more after the break. Mine's was um, a, a little bit more beginners because I'm V-Fun all day. But it was actually my first ever real route. So I got into outdoor climbing, right? Because I got a scholarship in 2011 to go to Colorado Mountain School, which is in Estes Park. And it was through a young adult cancer survivors, uh, like nonprofit that still exists today, First Ascents. So go go help them out too. Donate to me and donate to them. <laughs> so, And I became a baloney amputee. Um, in 2009, due to a really, really rare form of sarcoma, one of the rarest in the world, actually, has very low survival rate. And uh, I was going through like I was day drinking, depression, like you name it. I was living in a projects in East New York with abusive ex-fiance, like verbal abuse, all that kind of stuff. Like you can imagine that I wasn't in like the bestest place ever. Um, and I was visiting a fellow cancer survivor who's going through her like second round of the cancer coming back and just saying how she was doing. She had just come back from like some rafting trip and she told me about the nonprofit. And this is, oh yeah. And they even have scholarships, you know, cause like we're broke cause cancer bills and life and being in a projects and like, yeah, they give, they give scholarships. You can go out and, you know, pick a sport and do these things and get away, from, get out of this space away from this place. And I was like, cool. And so that was actually my first ever experience outdoor climbing. Um, which now everybody's like, well, that was your first experience? That's an epic experience. I was like, I, I had nothing to compare it to, but now I do. So, you know, we started off like learning the basics, going to St. Mary's Reservoir, learning to repel, like just kind of like basic stuff. But our big graduation climb at the end was um, the Bastille, which is like a multi-pitch in El Dorado Canyon. And um, note, I'm also a new amputee. I'm like in my first year of amputation, I am, I don't know, how, how, how much do I weigh? 300 maybe? I don't know, I'm like 280 something right now. My best climbing weight was probably 250, 240. But I'm like 5'10", you know, whatever, you get the idea. I'm Jason Momoa, it's all muscle underneath this fat. So the whole point is, <laughs> it's my, um, by the way, if anybody wants to put this out there, edit this in fits, it's my dream belay partner. I mean, he could do whippers all day. I won't need a sandbag, you know what I'm saying? Like. Where's where that? You know what I'm saying? Alex, you gotta make this happen. You know? Yeah, I know. I'm just putting this out there. Considering that, <laughs> considering that two of my friends, Kevin Jorgensen and Megan Martin, who I have on the on the texty daily, have both worked with this individual. I'm like, why isn't anybody asking me? to be ballistic <laughs> on these trips. <laughs> what is going on? It's okay. I'll deal with it. I'll be fine. Wait, I'm supposed to tell a story about climbing. Hold on a second. Right. The Bastille. <laughs> um, the Bastille in El Dorado Canyon is multi-pitch. It's four-pitch. We didn't do the full four. I think we did three of, we did three of four, right? Um, but it was, it was an interesting day because 
it was mist in the air. There was rain. So it's like wet. And being a new amputee, I didn't have like a bunch of hiking experience. <laughs> I didn't even have the right things on, you know, because I didn't know how to maneuver on these kind of materials, right? So the whole the whole experience those two weeks was a learning experience, learning how to walk on rock and gravel and balance myself. Do I need poles? Do I not need poles? Oh, everything's a scramble, you know, like because <laughs> hands to feet, right? Um, but this was a casual walk-in. So I thought, oh, we're gonna do something crazy, simple, and easy, just like what we did in St. Mary's Reservoir, like real chill, you know, scramble up some rocks. And I get there and they're like, we're climbing that. I was like, what part of that? Like all of that. You mean the one that starts down at the river and then comes up? They're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, And please note, this isn't before I knew about climbing prosthetics, you know, that actually make it better to climb or easier to climb. And I remember the first part of the, the first pitch is basically just a giant slopey crack, right? I think this is probably like a five, seven or five, eight climb, maybe, right? It's a classic. I I now know it's a classic. I didn't know I was just there. Um, and I'm literally dragging my prosthetic up because I have no idea how to use it. So there's like these deep groovy rock scratches. You just scare as I'm like, I have to crack through one crack. And then I'm literally learning how to multi-pitch on the way, which means that we didn't have any on the ground, like, okay, now you transfer, you know, this slide in and this, there is a guide there to make sure it gets done, but you're literally learning this on the fly. It's wet, it's raining. I'm in a rain suit too, while we're climbing. There's green rock, which is, is horrible if you can't feel, if you don't have a foot or feel. So you're just like slipping. It was just like, Honestly, I think that route probably is easier now on a day that it wasn't like that than it would be now. I was part of a 12-people group, young adult cancer survivors like myself, either recently finished with cancer or even still fighting it. And um, I got to leave New York City and leave everything that I felt that was of pressure. You know what I mean? It was like, actually being in that crack, being completely alone in that crack, except for like the voices ahead of me, like, keep going, you know, (laughs) otherwise than that, I, my mind was quiet, you know, because one of the things I just love about climbing for me is that my mind actually gets quiet. You know what I mean? Like I can only concentrate on my physical body. I can't concentrate. I can't think about anything else. I can't think about bills who like me, who don't like me. That was the first time during the whole trip that I really felt completely in this body because I've only been an amputee for not even a year, I think. And I think I had a hard time connect, reconnecting with my body, becoming a person with a disability, you know, spending 20 years or so not having a disability and getting used to like really putting this prosthetic through the ringer and, and, when you're climbing, because it's a total body sport, you know, you're relying on everything. And it forced me to rely on something that I'm kind of like learning to learning for it to be a part, fully part of my life in a, in a, in a new way. And I felt like it really tested that, um, you know, it's a long route. It's yeah, it's, it's a, a chill route, but it's, it's a long one. So I'm in there for a while, you know, trying to figure it out. You go from a crack then you come out and now you're on the flake, right? 
And then you're got a little kind of corner climb scramble and it's cool there. And then I was like learning my body of each pitch of, of different ways to move and, and kind of like re falling in love with my body along the climb. I was also scared shitless. Uh, so then that also puts you in a different place to be very like, I'm relying on me. Um, and then also just out of the whole entire week, it was the only time I really felt that felt like myself or even knew what that was because I felt that dealing with all the things that I was dealing with, um, back at home, I couldn't, I, I had a problem finding myself. Like, who am I? What am I now? You know? Um, one thing that happens if you are not, you know, born with your disability or we call congenital amputation, like born with amputation, um, is that you mourn your life before, right? So I I get it. I get a prosthetic and now you're trying to literally learn learn how to do everything over again. And there's some things that you love to do that are, don't feel the same or isn't the same or you can't do at all. And now you have to find your new favorite thing. You know, and so you go through this kind of like this depression, some mourning, especially depending on the support you have around you too, right? Or, or even how you li- deal with life issues, right? Maybe you don't have a therapist, you know, Lisi. Maybe you have a, I don't know, Hagadash. I don't know, whatever it is that you like. <laughs> do it, do it. Stuff to get too. through the client, get through. Yeah. <laughs> or do I? It's the it's the only legal drug that I use. Um, but the only thing I say is that like. I think when I think about what you were saying in your climb, I was actually listening to all the other parts of your climb about what you were talking about, how you had to go back home and like reevaluate yourself and then actually reconnect to people because your mind space, right? Where your mind space is during the climb, I think is what makes the climb so important because I've climbed harder stuff than that. I started, you know, five, 10 C's in the red that I was like, Ooh, this is interesting, you know, but it isn't the climb that changed my life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When when you uh w- when you go on trips with folks through the adaptive climbing group, how often do you see other climbers have full on life experiences? Every time on an excursion like that. Every time. It's literally what keeps me is, doing. Is it actually every time? I mean, uh, no, but but seriously, because I'm sure people have good experiences or it's like super fun or powerful, but how often do you think they have like a full on life experience that changes the trajectory of their life or changes? Well, some of the, some of you don't see right away. Cause that's pretty rare. Telling you when I say every single time, Alex, I sit every single time. <laughs> Let me tell you this right now, whether you are a volunteer, like able-bodied ally, right. Or a paraclimber themselves, somebody on this trip, if they come out with us for the first time, just one time, totally changed your life experience. I was just looking at one of our old student film videos on YouTube. I was showing it because we we're like updating our website. And on it was five people, different disabilities that had a POV of experience of climbing. And this video took place in 2015. It's like three minutes long. The video is called What is Adaptive Climbing? Look it up on YouTube. It's on there. It's out there. It's out there. And on there, I realized each person, the title underneath that introduces who they are, what they do for a living, completely changed from 2015 to nine, right? One was a policy analyst with JP Morgan. Now he's the accessibility coordinator of the Mass Transit Authority. And he always said that his experience joining the paraclimbing community and going out there climbing with us 
made because he was around different people with different disabilities. Because a lot of times people with disabilities are actually segregated, segregated from other people with disabilities. People with disabilities get separated by category in sports, right? Like let's say you're running a marathon or something. Wheelchair users go at a certain time. Amputees go at a certain time. Blind people go at a certain time. And then they put the able-bodied people running at a certain time. Imagine if you had a friend who was visually impaired, right? And I'm an amputee and we've been training for this marathon all year long. But when it's time to actually do the race, we don't get to run together. A lot of the parasports work like that, separated by category. I will be in a room, whether we're competing or not, and a, a, a guy who's paraplegic is belaying the visually impaired guy, calling out the holds to him. I don't get to see that in other sports that people take part in, in, in parasports. And that's like, when I say life-changing experiences literally happen every time. It's either the people who are watching us in the gym, because we're in there every single week, three times a week in New York City, <laughs> even more some other places, Chicago and Boston. Um, either the people in the gym is having a life-changing experience because they've never seen anything like this before in their life, or the first-time paraclimber who's never even thought climbing was a sport. You know what I mean? Or a thing that they can do, right? Because that representation visually is not there for them, right? It wasn't there for me. I didn't see no, no big butt climbers from, from Brooklyn when I started. <laughs> I was just, my whole family thought I was crazy. They're like, you're doing what? I mean, you know, you survived cancer. You don't, you don't have to like go do stuff. Like they, they thought I was crazy because I was like, I'm in Colorado. You know, like, so you have to understand that like, we are changing lives every single time, period. Every time we, we walk out and we say, we're going to climb today. Alex, uh, I think I'm curious whether the route for you is the obvious route or whether, like, what would your, what would your answer to the life or the route that sort of changed your life or your perspective be? Oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of boring. I, f I almost feel a little embarrassed. It's so cliche, but no, it's the obvious answer. I mean, if, if you're defining a route by, by what's changed your life, then, then obviously the route that I'm most well known for, that won an Academy Award that, you know, totally changed my professional life, my work life, like all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, I mean, obviously Soling El Cap is, is by far the biggest climbing experience in my life. Also, just the fact that I thought about it for so many years and then worked on it for a couple of years and then, you know, filmed it. It's like, it, you know, no other, I've, I haven't put that much effort into anything else that actually anything else I've done in my life full stop, <laughs> you know, since I didn't, didn't graduate college, didn't, I mean, I suppose I went to elementary school longer than, uh, than I worked on LCAP, but, but otherwise it's about the same. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, but the thing is, it's like not quite the same. I'd have to really think for, for life changing experiences like that. I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, climbing has been such a big part of my life for my whole life that it's really hard to untangle, uh, you know, what's a climbing experience from what's just normal life, like growing up and, you know, maturing and whatever else. Because I've been basically climbing five days a week since I was 10. You know, it's hard to, <laughs> hard to separate that out. But Lauren, uh, Lauren Fitz, I want to I hear your life-changing roots. Well, it's funny because I worked for the Colorado Mountain School and lived in Estes Park at that office where you probably were on that trip, Karima. And when I was thinking about roots, I like thought of a like half a dozen off the top of my head that I felt like were really important to me. And the Bastille crack was totally one of them because it's like the route that made me feel like a real climber for the first time. But I remember I have all these pictures of me wearing like tape gloves and like being all psyched to do the Bastille crack for the first time. But I also kind of feel like Alex, like my, my actual route choice is like really cliche because 
is the nose. But I also feel like I've never had like a single day on it that was like, this is my life-changing day. It's more that like for a big chunk of my life, I feel like it just revolved around the nose and people climbing the nose and like my own relationship with climbing evolving over like a variety of different descents and attempts on the nose because like I spent years and years and years like dreaming of climbing it and then kind of felt like when I finally did we had this perfect experience that left me kind of feeling like in a slump afterwards I feel like maybe like some of you can relate to this feeling of like you finally do the thing that you've been wanting to do for years and it's almost sad <laughs> like you're like oh well, like what am I gonna do now and the only thing I could think of was to like go faster and like to climb it in a day and then like had this big epic experience trying to climb it in a day and then like being so proud of these experiences and then ending up like living and working in Yosemite for a long time and eventually feeling like less proud of those things over time because then all of a sudden I had friends who could like climb the nose in a couple of hours and were lapping it and doing the link up you know and like climbing the nose before breakfast and stuff like that and I felt like I some of my like yeah accomplishment had been like taken away by like always having this route that's there that everyone is like literally using as a yardstick and like using as the thing to measure you know your like worth as a climber on and then also having like a bunch of negative experiences related to it like I watched my climbing mentor almost die on the nose you know and like I rescued people later on like off of the nose and I feel like yeah it's just like been this route that's just kind of like always existed for me and like I've had really good days up there and really bad days up there and I've watched friends have both really good and really bad days up there and I feel like when you spend that much time in Yosemite it's just kind of like it's just always there. And in a lot of ways, like, I feel like I've had to kind of back away from it, even though I've had such great times up there because of the fact that it's, like, the literal yardstick for, like, climbers in Yosemite and, like, judging, you know, how fast you are as a measure of, like, your kind of, like, belonging in that climbing community. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm curious, like, why you feel you need to, like, why that takes away from your experience, you know? Like, would it be possible for you to separate other people's performance from your own experience with the route? I think I can now with, like, more time. Like, now it's been also a couple of years since, like, I was working in the park and in that kind of community. But when I was there, I definitely felt a little bit like, oh, it's so funny that, like, I used to be proud of, like, a six-hour or 16-hour ascent on the nose. And now, all of a sudden, I have friends who, like, would routinely think that that was, like, a catastrophe, you know? And so you're like having these conversations with people and just like, or like I climbed, you know, I know the triple direct is only, is kind of like a nose variation, but like my fastest day up there was like a complete disaster for Quinn and Josie, right? Who had like never spent that long trying to climb El Cap and thought that the whole thing kind of went terribly. And to me, it felt like this huge accomplishment. And uh, obviously they didn't mean to like make me feel bad or anything but like then like years later like working on SAR and stuff like there's people yeah it's just I think it's because there's like a number associated with it like it's not just doing it like you're not just it's not about just sending it like it'd be like if all of a sudden someone was like oh Lisi, like how long did it take you to climb (laughs) 
fall of well, my head. I mean, like, like yeah. the, the version of that for me would be like some of the people I was climbing with this season were like, oh, I'm going to try to flash fall of man, you mm-hmm. know, which is like, I'm like, cool. That's awesome. I wish I could do that. Never no, but, could I but do the, that. The appropriate comparison, though, is if you see an 11-year-old show up and then on-site fall a man, <laughs> then you're just kind of like, you know, like no matter how proud you are of the effort you put in and, and yeah. the time you spend and, and what you learned as a climber to do it, it's just hard to be too proud of yourself when you see a child just on-site it or, or yeah, something you, on that level. And then you ask them if they liked it and they go, yeah, oh, yeah, it was a great warm-up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was a writer guess. And climbing the nose, like, I mean, even like a normal 16-hour, like, nose in a day feels like embarrassing in like certain groups of people you know and it's funny because like i'm from the east coast when i learned about climbing i just was like oh i hope i get to see el cap someday and so like when i finally climbed it after like years of wanting to climb it you're like oh i'm so proud of this but i wasn't like part of that community like i didn't know anyone else who had like really done that you know and so then like years later to be part of that community and all of a sudden you're like everyone's like literally sitting around talking shit about people that spend three days climbing the nodes. And you're like, oh, that's why I feel kind of bad about it. Like, it's just. So basically you had to reevaluate your friend group is what you're telling me. Because I mean, I, I experienced that too. I mean, even among the paraclimbers, the ones that got the movies, you know, and all that stuff, I'm not some prolific ascentist among them either. I mean, I've had them make jokes about me, you know, oh, you don't really climb or you don't, you know what I mean? Like, evaluating my value in the sport based on what I choose or choose not to do or how much I do or what I finish and what I don't finish. So even among, you know, that particular group of people, just like in in that particular group of people you joined, I was also seen that way as well, or probably still seen that way, but I don't give two shits. So (laughs) that's my personality. Um, But, you know, Lauren, I mean, you were proud of that accomplishment until someone told you that you shouldn't be proud of that accomplishment. So, you know, just like I made made up the whole thing about hashtag first fat girl ascent, you know, because somebody would be like, oh yeah, that 5'9 was just this, you know, or that 5'10B, like I did that like three times faster. Then, you know, that's someone trying to take away what you felt. Because again, like as climbers, we're, we're in our own body. What made that climb so prolific was not just because it was the hardest one I did that week, that classic that we both share. It was because of the way it made me feel when I was doing it. And for anybody to take that away from someone, I don't think they're really part of this climbing community. If you ask me, then they're really not in love with climbing. They're in love with numbers. They're in love with time, you know, that belongs to someone else. I, I don't know. I just can't connect to that. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's kind of a unique example, too, because it's like one of the only routes that we kind of have as a larger, like in our sport, where like time is as big of a factor. You know, like it's not really as much of it. Like, yeah, something about the time on the nose is like a really unique thing, I think. Yeah, yeah I just that's... have to say, I think that the time on the nose is really important and we should definitely care a lot about it. <laughs> Why would you say that, Alex? I mean, <laughs> oh, well, you know, f- funny you ask, actually, you know, it's a it's a really important speed record. Is also. <laughs> I think I, I, I guess I'm not trying to take away also from, you know, Alex or, you know, um, other comrades accomplishments over time. I just think that like whatever your goal it is for it, right? Like there's some people whose goal is to finish a marathon, right? And then there's people's goals to make a certain time at a marathon, right? And it's about 
what it did for you because you hit your own PR, Lauren, right? That was your own personal PR. I don't think no one should take away from the personal PR, but we also should honor, you know, the greats who did it faster. And maybe that could be a bar like, oh, I'd like to be that fast. If that's what you want to do. You know what I mean? Like all of those um, accomplishments are are valid. All of those experiences, let me say not even accomplishments, all of those experiences are valid and should be celebrated in one way or another, either personally or, you know, worldwide. Right, Alex? <laughs> yeah, but it, it's just an interesting question, though. I mean, I, I agree that all the experiences are valid. And, and I actually had a really similar experience on El Cap that Lauren did, where, you know, my first goal was just to climb El Cap, and it would be this incredible thing just to get to the top. And then over time, your standards change, the, the community with which uh, you spend your time also changes. And then, you know, you're, yeah, basically, the norms start to change. And suddenly, you're like, well, this thing that I thought was incredible just doesn't seem that incredible anymore. You know, but I don't know. I think it's an interesting question, though, at what, I don't know, I mean, you, you celebrate the experience, each individual's experience, but then there is sort of this objective level, like, is this actually difficult? Is this cutting edge? Like, like how much of that, you know, because a lot of the time, it's not like your friend's trying to diminish your experience. They just actually, you know, they're just talking about their own experience, which is like, you know, that route's pretty easy for me. And it's just hard not to compare yourself to others. I mean, it's like, I think we all do that. Mm. I mean, to, you know, I'm, I'm here on a bouldering trip and like literally everybody's a better boulder than me. And so you just look around and you're like, oh, everyone, everyone's a lot better than I am. And it's like, you know, it's hard not to constantly compare yourself when you're climbing. No, I think that's true. I think that's one of the tough things about the sport is like, it is so easy to compare yourself and yet it almost means nothing. It to do so mm. just because we all are so different and have different strengths and skills and background experience, et cetera, mm. you know, and we're all coming like even a person that had the exact same body type size, you know, like you were a carbon copy of, they might be in a different place approaching a particular route or climb than you are, you know, mentally or otherwise with their training or whatever. Um, so Last summer, I would say the most prolific climber I saw was a 79-year-old double below knee amputee who had two open heart surgeries. And so like every year I'll have like an, a climbing moment in my program that reminds me why I'm still doing this for free. You know, like and I was like, mm, that's the moment right there. He never climbed before he came to started going to our sessions in, in Rochester, New York, right? Come in, meet up, do like one or two climbs. That's it. And then when he found out that we were doing some outdoor climbing on Moss Island, which is like this super chill approach. I mean, they even built benches at the place. I mean, the stuff is glossy, like climbing in Central Park. He he got up there. You know what I mean? Like we can't get some other people younger than him, you know, to to even get try to go outside. And then here was this guy who had two open heart surgeries, was 79 years old, double below knee amputee and climbing for the first time. You know what I mean? To me, that was the best climb I saw the whole year. And note, I'm climbing with people who've literally broken actual records, famous alpinists I climbed with last year too. You know what I mean? Lisi said, like, we're coming in with these different body types. We're coming in with these different sizes, life experiences, even climbing experience, and, and also values. Like we all come in with different values based on our life experience, you know, different goals based on our climbing experience. Alex has been climbing his whole entire life. I didn't climb until after I lost my leg. So my bar is a whole different bar as it is. <laughs> like I can't even, I can't even think about your beta. Like your beta doesn't breathe over here. You know what I'm saying? So 
I, I definitely agree with with Lisi on on that factor for sure. Well, and I feel like something too that like I've realized as I've kind of like been reflecting on the role of this route is that everyone is probably climbing the nose for the same reason. That maybe like unlike Fall of Man, like there's kind of no, uh, I don't think there's anyone that's ever climbed the nose that's been like meh. You know, and it's kind of cool to be like, oh, we all have this like shared experience. And like, I don't think there's anyone that ever climbs it and goes, that was easy. Like, that's too easy. It's like it's challenging kind of no matter what. And it's great no matter what. And I feel like that's a good thing to realize. It's like, oh, but we're all really going up there because it's like it's that good. Mm. Okay, just to clarify, the only person I've heard say that fallen man is meh is Alex. (laughs) And during during this conversation, I went back and looked through 8A and Mountain Project. (laughs) Literally every single person is like, this route is amazing. <laughs> yep, those but, people could be self-selecting. Except for Alex, like, who commented, exciting. Though <laughs> <laughs> that actually, that really does highlight what I was trying to say earlier, which is that I think most people just get really scared on it. So then they sort of equate that as like, what an incredible route because I had an interesting experience We don't have to it. belabor this, but I but, just you know. wanted to put it out there. <laughs> no. Well, but but I do actually think that, that that speaks to a broader point about climbing, that if, if it's scary, if it brings up powerful emotions for you, then it feels like more of a more of a thing you're like what an incredible route mm-hmm. because it made me feel something that I don't normally feel and it actually doesn't really mean anything about the route it just speaks to what you felt while trying to do the route mm-hmm. which is yeah. why I mean, why Karima can have a life experience on on the Bastille basically it doesn't really matter what the route is what matters is the experience that it brings up in you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, yeah. and actually for what it's worth I, I was like I think the Bastille is actually a better route than than fall of man yeah. in, in this, in this <laughs> category because the Bastille actually is I do think that is a really great route too yeah it is a great route it's it's kind of like the nose and I also find it quite scary it's like (laughs) it's so slippery that's what that's what it was it's so slippery yeah yeah can we hear Fitz's route because I'm curious if it breaks down into just a little route or some big experience kind of like the nose to the Bastille which you know are different scales but but same idea yeah uh so I was thinking through it and my my route, it's a route, but it's also part of this bigger experience that I had when I was 22. Um, I won this incredible grant through the University of Washington for travel, and it was, like, specifically for travel that had nothing to do with studying abroad. Like, it was it was to basically go kind of, like, wander, and I proposed using climbing as a vehicle to go explore a country. So I ended up spending six months in Australia in 2001, so I spent a ton of time in Arapiles on that trip, um, and it was winter, so there weren't a ton of people, and the people there that were there were were pretty, uh, they were like pretty diehard, I would say, and um, I was climbing a ton with the rope, um, really learning how to, to like break into harder, more difficult, like run out trad climbing, um, which I was like, I, I thought was pretty damn cool, and that was great. I did that, but I also ended up um, free soloing a lot. Like that was, it was it was hard to find partners, but I was also just like into it. It was a very famous route in Australia called Kachung, which is this overhang. It's got this like classic vista. It's I you knew know, you were going to say that as soon as you said Australia. Yeah. I was like Kachung is going to be a route for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like it, it's just like it's like so photogenic, and it's kind of like a little bit of a party trick. Like, I don't know if you would agree with that, Alex. It sounds like you've done that. I but... actually, I can't remember if I climbed it. Yeah. It's, I just know it's the photos. Like, so I probably it, didn't. It looks way bigger, but, or like kind of looks like way more, it's this classic like six foot overhang. 
uh, you know, there's really big holds through the whole thing. It was a really nice winter day. Like it was, it was perfect. I remember it being kind of windy, but like not too crazy. And I think, you know, over that period of time, I did kachooing multiple times without a rope, but, but that day sort of stands out because I went out and I set a goal of soloing 50 pitches and kachooing wasn't even like the hardest thing that I did that day, but it's just like, it's clearly like the most memorable. I mean, your feet cut loose. It's, it's kind of wild and, and, and. You know, the, the funny thing, too, is I remember getting back and feeling kind of, like, proud of myself. And, and, and then I remember, like, reading, you know, in the guidebook, like, that night or a few days later that Peter Croft had, had soloed 100 pitches in a day. So, like, I don't know. The, the, I think some of those memories just sort of sat like little embers inside of me for, like, a long time where I realized that when things were difficult or I wasn't sure, like, I could come back and tap into that in other parts of my life where I just realized, like, hey, if you're calm— you know, do the things you know you can do, it's, it's it, so much more becomes possible. Those experiences soloing at Arapiles just kind of taught me the power of my own, like, mind, which I am deeply appreciative for. And that's extended way beyond climbing, even, even as, like, you know, I don't solo anymore or um, whatnot, but they're profound memories for me, for sure. I'm I'm kind of curious as as an aside. You say you said you don't solo anymore. How mm. come? That's the kind of part of the deal that Becca and I made in our relationship, and how we um, figured that out when we were in our early twenties. Like I love the power of like what and the the experiences of of free soloing so deeply. Like I loved it a lot. Um, I loved Becca more. Um, but because you know, she, she was anti soloing. I mean, it was just like for her, we wanted to share a life together. And she felt like that was a pretty hard thing to reconcile. And I had to listen to that and understand that and make my own choice. And it wasn't, you know, I, I think we probably would have worked through it, but I, I understood it was painful for her. And she would support me. Like, I mean, she definitely like, there was like a long time like where I like was trying bigger things and she would totally support support me. But I realized that it was like a hard thing. And ultimately like... I was more psyched about the adventure that, and like all the things we could do together as a team than I was about that individual experience. Like I wouldn't say that she like pressured me, but I just knew it, it mattered and I knew it, it like hurt for her and I knew it left her, um, you know, like when she'd drop me at a trailhead and be like, can you pick me up on the other side of the mountain range? Like I knew that that was like a tough day for her. Um, and so I, I just, it just kind of faded. You know? So mature of you that wasn't it at all. Like I said, I learned what I was going to learn and the top line would be presence. Like that's what I think it's presence living in the exact moment. Um, you know, we all have to like look forward or backwards sometimes to be able to navigate life well, but presence to me is the thing, right? And I find that in my life and I've also made that in my life. And like when I don't feel like that, I reorganize things so that I can find it more. Um, and I get it in creativity most of the time. I get it in being a dad, you know, most of the time, right? I, and then I get it in the things I do outdoors maybe too much of the time because occasionally I forget that I am not 23 anymore. You know, it was like, I, I don't know, I had a lot of good experiences doing it that are like super powerful, but at the same point, I've had way more super powerful experiences with everything that Becca and I have done together today, you know, 20 years later. 
so what are you, what fits now? Have you like never had a feeling like that since then? Like, was this, was this it? No, I, I, it's funny. I actually can get, get that same, the same feelings back today. I think the other thing that all of us have said is like, you, you come to like, if you're going to do this for a long time, you have to, you have to make peace with your own relationship to, to the sport and to your body. Mm. Because the one thing that is consistent is we all aren't 20 years old anymore. I know newsflash, right? Um, <laughs> But that's like that. That's a consistent thing between all of us. So you have to sort of realize, like, well, you know, some of some of this is going to fade, or some of that excellence, or the speed, or the strength. It's it's eventually like going to go away, and so you have to find a deeper relationship to the sport if you're going to keep doing it for your whole life. Like if you're a lifer, you just will. Thanks, Karima, for chatting with us today. Check out and support her work at adaptiveclimbinggroup.org. We've left the link in the show notes. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Them Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Editing by Marco Seiler Gonzalez and me, Fitzcahal. Evan Phillips mixed and mastered today's show. Music by Brendan O'Connell and Faring. Lauren Delani Miller is our producer. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports. And Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape Them Beer. Thanks for listening.